Hello everyone, welcome back to The Layman's Historian, episode 26, Hamilcar Barca and the End of Carthaginian Sicily. Last time, we saw how the First Punic War continued to drag on as first Carthage and then Rome celebrated roaring triumphs before suffering a string of devastating defeats. Like two punch-drunk boxers, both sides kept going at each other, but neither could land a decisive final blow. In following the last episode, you may have noticed that the fortunes of the Romans and Carthaginians seemed to fluctuate radically and unpredictably. One moment the Romans would charge through Sicily after crushing a Carthaginian land army and besiege Lilibaeum, while the next would see the Carthaginians regain control of the sea after a series of Roman naval disasters. Neither side could manage to knock out the other, and realistically, peace should have been concluded with an honorable draw. However, Carthage and Rome once again failed to come to terms as the war entered its 17th year. At this point, Hamilcar Barca appeared on the scene. And yes, I am talking about that Hamilcar Barca, father of the famous Hannibal Barca. Hamilcar makes his debut on the historical stage when he was dispatched to Sicily in 247 BC to shore up the flagging Carthaginian defense. As we have seen, the name Hamilcar, meaning brother to Melkart, the patron god of Tyre, was very common among the Carthaginians, but there was nothing common about this latest Hamilcar. Surnamed Barak, or Barca, a name synonymous with the biblical judge Barak, and which means thunderbolt or lightning, Hamilcar's origins are shrouded in mystery. Some claim that the Barkids, as Hamilcar's family would come to be called, originally immigrated from Cyrene in modern Libya becoming a respectable, if not extremely influential, clan in Carthage. None can say for sure, though. All we know for sure is that Hamilcar came from the wealthy, aristocratic class of major Carthaginian landowners, which included the likes of Hanno the Great. Hamilcar's military training and theory, however, more resembled the thinking of Alexander the Great and the Hellenistic Greeks than his more mercantile peers who saw war as merely another way to conduct business. Hamilcar was a military man through and through, a general whose charisma, cunning, and relentless daring foreshadowed the deeds of his much more famous progeny. Diodorus Siculus reports that, Even before he became general, Hamilcar's nobility of spirit was apparent, and when he succeeded to the command, he showed himself worthy of his country by his zeal for glory and scorn of danger. He was reputed to be a man of exceptional intelligence, and since he surpassed all his fellow citizens both in daring and in ability at arms, he was indeed both a goodly prince and a brave warrior. Although scholars debate regarding the ultimate usefulness of Hamilcar's achievements on the battlegrounds of Sicily, during the First Punic War, it is hard to deny that his efforts and the name he made for himself made an impression on the Romans that they found difficult to ignore. Upon landing in Sicily, 
The 28-year-old Hamilcar fully realized the grim task set before him. As we remember from last episode, by this point, Carthage held only two settlements in Sicily, Lolabeum and Drapana. Despite her victory at Drapana over the Roman fleet and her subsequent undisputed possession of the sea, Carthage's navy had been reduced in size on the orders of Hanno the Great, the Carthaginian aristocrat who headed a party opposed to continuing the war with Rome, preferring to secure Carthage's future by expansion into Africa. Thus, Hamilcar only had a small corps of demoralized troops, and due to Carthage's financial troubles, he had no war chest and no money to hire new mercenary soldiers. In the words of historian Dexter Hoyer, Realistically, Hamilcar's task was not so much to win the war as to avoid losing it. Unperturbed by the dire state of affairs, Hamilcar struck the Sicilian scene with the suddenness of a thunderbolt. Confronted with an unpaid and mutinous army, Hamilcar swiftly restored order by winnowing out the leading troublemakers and forging the remainder into a well-disciplined band of confident troops. He immediately realized that he would be unable to contend head-to-head against the Roman legions with the limited manpower and resources at his command. So he devised a campaign of guerrilla warfare suited to both his circumstances and to the rugged terrain of Sicily. Leading his troops deep into enemy territory, Hamilcar established his camp on the mountain of Hirta, the modern-day range of Monte Castellacio, a position just west of Roman-occupied Panormus. The spot was well chosen, easily defendable due to the steep slopes of the mountain, while also providing access to fresh water, good pasturage for horses and pack animals, and an excellent natural harbor. From here, Hamilcar launched several raids along the Italian peninsula with the few ships he possessed, harrowing the Roman countryside in an attempt to take advantage of Carthage's superior naval position. On land, he organized and carried out several skillful attacks on the Roman rearguard surrounding Lilibaeum, using his vantage point on top of the mountain, disrupting the Roman supply lines and tying down many enemy troops who had been earmarked to continue the sieges of Lilibaeum and Drapana. For nearly three years, Hamilcar held out on the mountain of Hirta against all odds, facing a succession of Roman commanders who failed to dislodge him from his mountain stronghold. While Hamilcar was quite literally holding down the fort in Sicily, the other Carthaginian commanders were content to allow the war against Rome to grind to a halt. Rather than support Hamilcar's efforts in Sicily, Hanno the Great and his council of landowners focused on consolidating their own power in the Carthaginian Senate. Gaining power in 244 BC, Hanno finally had his chance to put his own plans in motion. In Hanno's mind, the war in Sicily was a lost cause, an acceptable loss so long as it could be compensated for somewhere else. Besides, peace would likely be concluded shortly anyway. Under the belief that the war was winding down, Hanno the Great led the Senate to order the demobilization of Carthage's war fleet 
in order to save money, a decision that would come back to haunt Carthage three years later. While Hamilcar scrounged to keep his ranks filled and support his small force off the Sicilian countryside, Hanno marshaled a well-supplied and well-equipped army which had lain idle in Carthage for a campaign against the Numidians and the interior of North Africa. Whatever his other faults, Hanno proved to be no slouch as a commander, conquering the Numidian towns of Hecatopylon and Sica, extending Carthage's influence some 162 miles inland. During this campaign, Hanno succeeded in not only training his soldiers, but also in maintaining them at the expense of the Numidian countryside, thus relieving some of the strain on Carthage's treasury. After agreeing to spare the Numidian cities from the horrors of a sack, Hanno and his men were celebrated by the defeated peoples with splendid feasting and lavish entertainment. Loaded down with crowns of gold and silver and a host of other spoils, Hanno returned to Carthage as a conquering hero. However, though desperately needed in Sicily, all these riches and his veteran army would remain in the capital until the end of the war. Back in Sicily, Hamilcar faced ever-increasing pressure from the Roman forces on the island, but he always gave back as good as he got. Polybius describes the tenseness of Hamilcar's battles during these days. The opposing generals were like a pair of exceptionally brave and skillful boxers, fighting it out in a contest for first prize who pummel each other so incessantly with blow after blow that it is impossible for either the contestants or the spectators to note and anticipate every single attack or punch, though the overall vigor and determination displayed by them can be used to gain an adequate impression of their skill and strength and courage. The generals repaid ambushes with ambushes, struck at and attacked each other on a daily basis. They tried everything, traditional ideas, improvised tactics dictated by particular circumstances, and schemes that involved risk and aggressive daring. But for many reasons, decisive success eluded them. Casting about for a way to break the deadlock, Hamilcar decided on a bold plan to move his operations to nearby Mount Eryx, modern-day Monte San Giuliano, Located high upon the mountain, with a magnificent view of the surrounding country, the town of Eryx promised to be an even more impregnable stronghold than Hyrta had been. Sailing in under cover of darkness, Hamilcar led his men in a sudden assault upon the town of Eryx, situated halfway up the slope on the mountain. Taken completely by surprise, the entire Roman garrison was slaughtered save for a small band who held out in the city temple at the summit of the mountain. Hamilcar ordered the deportation of the citizens to Drapana before proceeding to harass the Roman troops holding out in the temple fortress, while simultaneously trying to defend himself against the Roman army at the base of the mountain. His new encampment was precariously placed between these two forces. But even with these strategic problems, the capture of Eryx was an enormous morale boost to the war-weary Carthaginians. The city had been held by Carthage for over 200 years, 
and the temple on its summit was identified with the Phoenician goddess Astarte. To have regained such a site, a reminder of when the Carthaginians had dominated Sicily instead of desperately clinging to their final two strongholds, must have served as a moving moment for the Carthaginian forces. From his nearly impregnable position at Eryx, Hamilcar continued his policy of dispatching swift raids across the countryside, constantly surprising and forestalling the Romans at every opportunity. He maintained his forces at Eryx without costing Carthage a single coin by feeding them off the country and paying them with war booty. Even so, at one point, Hamilcar had to face down a mutiny of a thousand Celtic mercenaries who treacherously planned to turn the city over to the Romans. Hamilcar decisively crushed the mutiny with his usual rapidity. Despite their superior armies and resources, the Romans could not drive Hamilcar from his position on Eryx, and they soon learned not to underestimate the ability of this young Carthaginian commander. Once, when Hamilcar requested a truce in order to bury his fallen soldiers, a consul named Fundanius arrogantly replied that Hamilcar should instead request a truce to save the living, not bury the dead. In a following battle, Hamilcar mauled the Romans so badly that Fundanius in turn had to request a truce for burial. Hamilcar pithily replied that he was at war with the living but had come to terms with the dead, and granted the truce. For all Hamilcar's efforts, though, the fate of the war was soon taken out of his hands. In 242 BC, the Roman Senate decided that Rome should once again take to the sea to seek a decision to the war. With no end in sight on land due to Hamilcar's strenuous efforts, the Romans hoped that by bypassing Hamilcar, and cutting him off from home, they could starve him into surrender. However, Rome herself was nearly bankrupt by the 22 years of continuous warfare, and she had no money with which to build another fleet. In the end, her ships came from private contributions by patriotic wealthy citizens who joined together to each fund the construction of a quinquiring. As we remember, each quinquereem was built at an enormous cost, and there was no guarantee that the donors would ever see their money again, since they were to be repaid out of any war booty taken. Nonetheless, the money flowed in, and thanks to these patriotic donations, Rome launched a fleet of 200 quinquereems under Gaius Lutatius Catullus, who set sail for Drapana. In Carthage, the news of Rome's new navy brought consternation. Ever since the demobilization ordered by Hanno two years before, Carthage had no fleet to speak of since she believed Rome had ceased to challenge her on the water. Now, the Carthaginians scrambled to assemble their own fleet to meet the Roman onslaught. By 241 BC, she dispatched 250 vessels under a different Hanno, this time the old general from Acragas and Agnomus. He sailed for the Agetes Islands, a small chain of islands located just off the coast of Lilibaeum, with ships laden with grain 
and other supplies for Hamilcar's forces at Eryx. Hanno's plan had been to cross to Eryx as quickly as possible, unload his supplies, and take on Hamilcar and his veteran soldiers to act as crack marines before sailing to meet the Roman navy. The Roman consul Lutatius, however, forestalled Hanno by sailing out from Drapana and blocking the Carthaginian route from the Agites Islands. Lutatius had spent the time while he was waiting for the appearance of the Carthaginian fleet by having his crews practice maneuvering their ships under a strict regimen until, in the words of Polybius, they were as fit as athletes. The Quinquiremes under Lutatius's commands were also a marked improvement over their Roman predecessors, the new models having been based on Hannibal the Rhodian's vessel, which the Romans had reverse-engineered. Coupled with a complement of picked Roman troops from the land army, this new Roman fleet presented one of the greatest challenges Carthage had had to face during the entire war. By contrast, the rapidly assembled Carthaginian fleet was a sad shell of its former glory. Over twenty years of war had taken its toll on the experienced pilots and oarsmen Carthage could muster during the early phases of the conflict, and the haste with which the fleet was launched, and the failure to pick up Hamilcar's troops, meant that the Carthaginian crews and marines were inexperienced and untested in battle. Nonetheless, upon the shoulders of these untried men lay Carthage's last hope of defeating Rome. On the day of battle, the weather was unfavorable towards the Romans with a strong wind and heavy swells directed in their face. After briefly hesitating, Lutatius decided that it was better to chance a battle than risk losing the Carthaginian fleet and allowing it to meet up with the dreaded Hamilcar. Exhorting his men to do their best, he sailed out into open sea to meet the Carthaginians under their old admiral, Hanno. The Roman oarsmen, wrought to the pitch of perfection by constant training, easily cut through the heavy waves, and battle was joined. The Roman ships pivoted and maneuvered with consummate skill, ramming and boarding the Carthaginian ships at many points. These Carthaginian ships were hampered by their heavy cargoes and sat deeply in the water, making them stationary targets for the oncoming Romans. The battle-hardened Roman marines leapt on board the enemy ships to grapple with the raw Carthaginian conscripts, slicing through them like a buzzsaw. The result was never in doubt. Soon the Carthaginian navy turned to flee for the last time. The Romans sunk 50 Carthaginian ships and captured 70 more, along with 10,000 prisoners, while they only lost 30 of their own ships. Now, Rome controlled the western Mediterranean once again. After crucifying the luckless old Hanno, the Carthaginian state was at a loss how to proceed. A few senators wished to continue the war unabated, but most, including Hanno the Great, felt that, with the loss of their fleet, they could not guarantee supplies to their armies in Sicily. On the other hand, if they abandoned the Sicilian army to its fate, 
then they had neither the officers nor the men to continue fighting. Besides all this, the treasury was empty once again. Unable to come to a decision, the Carthaginian Senate sent a message to Hamilcar in order to give him the final say. According to Polybius, Hamilcar acted exactly as a good, prudent commander should. As long as the situation had held reasonable grounds for optimism, he had done everything he could, however apparently risky or daunting. It would be hard to think of another general who so thoroughly followed every scent of victory. But as matters stood, with no reasonable hope left of saving the men under his command, he very sensibly and wisely yielded to circumstances and sent heralds to discuss terms for an end to the war. The terms given by Lutatius were severe, but not unexpected. Carthage was to evacuate Sicily and all the islands between Sicily and Italy to return the Roman prisoners of war while paying a heavy ransom for her own, to refrain from attacking Syracuse or any Roman allies, and to pay a hefty war indemnity of 2,200 talents over the next 20 years. Considering that a common soldier in this period received approximately a drachma a day, and 6,000 drachmas equaled one talent, this indemnity was sufficient to pay for an army of 20,000 men for two years. Even so, when this treaty was presented to the Roman people for ratification, the people demanded that the indemnity be raised to the crippling sum of 3,200 talents, with 1,000 due immediately. The time for the payment of the rest was halved to 10 years, a move clearly designed to forever cripple an already bankrupt Carthage. Thus ended the First Punic War. The conflict lasted from 265 BC to 241 BC, a full 24 years of continuous warfare and the longest uninterrupted war of antiquity. According to Polybius, Rome lost 700 warships due to battle or storm while Carthage lost 500. Historian Adrian Goldsworthy estimates that Rome lost approximately 50,000 men of citizenship status, based on 3rd century census reports. However, these reports do not include auxiliary troops and anyone who served in the Roman army without citizenship status. If Polybius's numbers ring true, Rome would have lost somewhere between 200,000 to 300,000 men total, a casualty count approaching the total losses of the United States during World War II. Although their losses are unreported, it is likely that the Carthaginians suffered a similar number of casualties. Polybius recounts that no other known war went on so long without interruption, and none was fought on such a scale. Polybius even claims that the First Punic War outdid all the wars of Alexander the Great and his successors for the sheer number of men and fleets involved. The First Punic War would have greater ramifications for the Mediterranean world than the number of personnel and equipment lost. With the successful conclusion of the fighting, Rome came into her own and gained confidence to challenge other powers greater than herself. 
For 24 years, Roman grit had driven her war effort. And in the end, it was Roman grit, the dedication to never give up or surrender, that secured her the victory. With this newly awakened confidence and the lessons she had learned in this first colossal struggle with Carthage, Rome was ready to make her mark on the Mediterranean world. Rome was ready to make her mark on the Mediterranean. For Carthage, the First Punic War was an unmitigated disaster. She was left bereft of her fleet, her treasury, and her Sicilian holdings, which had been Phoenician long before Romulus had ever founded his upstart city on the Tiber. Throughout the entire First Punic War, Adderbal, the commander at Drapana, was the only Carthaginian admiral who won a major victory against the Romans at sea, a fact that highlights the ineptitude of the vaunted Carthaginian navy during the course of the war. Carthage's once proud fleet had had one last chance to protect her at the Agites Islands, and it had failed. Her oligarchy had proved incapable of supporting her generals in the field, instead preferring to remain stingy and complacent. Few of the Carthaginian generals had been inept or incompetent, but those who failed, whether due to bad luck or factors beyond their control, endured the horrors of the cross on the orders of the Council of 104. While it crucified its own generals for the slightest failing, the Carthaginian government neglected to leverage all the means at its command to ensure victory. No emissaries were sent to the Ligurians and Celts of northern Italy, peoples who bore no love toward Rome and who would have gladly opened up a second front against the hated Roman legionaries. Instead, these tribesmen remained quietly at home while Carthage struggled for her life. Similarly, Carthage proved incapable of winning over the Greek city-states and kingdoms to join her against the rising danger posed by Rome. Neither could Carthage ever manage to capitalize on the opportunities presented by her victories at battles such as Tunis and Drapana, her leaders instead preferring to maintain the status quo stalemate of the Sicilian Wars, which had come before. Rome, however, was not Syracuse. Her people knew one thing, and one thing only, victory, and they would sacrifice everything in order to achieve it. In the end, Rome ground Carthage down and won by being the last one standing. Thus, when Hamilcar Barca descended from Mount Eryx, he emerged into a new world. As the historian Theodore Mommsen puts it, the unconquered general of a vanquished nation descended from the mountains which he had defended so long and delivered to the new masters of the island the fortresses which the Phoenicians had held in their uninterrupted possession for at least 400 years. After seven years of campaigning, Hamilcar Barca laid down his commission and sailed home. Carthaginian Sicily was at an end. But with the close of the war, a new threat faced Carthage, one greater than even Rome had been. Hamilcar would not remain long in retirement, 
for the Carthaginians would call upon him to deliver the city from forces within her own walls. Next time, we will see how an exhausted Carthage would have to fight for her life in what would become known as the Truceless War, a conflict made infamous by the cruelty and ruthlessness with which it was fought. If you've enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to the show and following me on Facebook and Twitter to keep up with the latest content. Also, if you get a chance, make sure to check out the Layman's Historian website at www.thelaymanshistorian.wordpress.com for informative maps and pictures regarding the events discussed in the show. Until next time, take care and read more history.